welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Today we start a short series in which we look at Jesus through the Gospels and why the Gospels are so important to us and therefore in the understanding of Jesus and therefore our Christian walk. So I want us to start by, obviously we're going to be looking at Matthew, but I want us to look at a very famous passage in Matthew. It's Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20, and it says these words. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or just one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell or Hades shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Tom Wright, the former bishop of Durham, and now lecturer of New Testament studies at St. Andrews, wrote a book a short while ago entitled, How God Became King. He says this in the preface of his book, it has slowly been dawning on me over many years that there is a fundamental problem at the heart of the Christian faith and practice as I have known them. The problem can be summarized quite easily for we have forgotten what the four gospels are all about. Yes, they are about Jesus, but what exactly are they saying about Jesus? Yes, they are about God, but what precisely are they saying about God? Yes, they are about the beginnings of what was later known as Christianity, but what are they saying about that strange new movement, and how do they resource it for its life and work? So what is God really like? Is he a tyrant? Is he a harmless, gentle benefactor who jumps or we would like to see jump when we ask him to? Most Christians don't fall into either of those categories, but many of us fall into another, this being that we make Jesus look like we need him to look like, that we make him look like our own image so that we can feel better about ourselves sometimes, sometimes to justify how we feel, how we live, how we act. The Bible makes it clear that God is uniquely seen in the person and life of Jesus Christ. We read in John 14 where the disciples have been discussing Jesus and he says this to them, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Literally translated, that should say, I am way, I am truth, I am life. But then Philip responds to him. Philip responds quite bravely and says, well, no, we don't know the way. So Jesus then comes back and replies, you have seen me, and you know the way. 
And he continues with these incredible words, insightful, truth-filled ways, saying that if you have seen me, then you have seen the Father. Whoever wrote the book of Hebrews starts by saying that the Son of God is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. It goes like this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So if this is true, how do we know what Jesus is like? What picture do we have of him today in our mind? What shapes, what forms our picture of Jesus? Because the crucial understanding to our faith is that we know who this Jesus is. And one of the central sources, if not the most important of all sources, for the Christian in understanding who Jesus is, is found in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So over these next three to four weeks, we're going to look at what we see in each Gospel about Jesus. Whenever we read the Word of God, we can easily fall into a number of traps when handling it. And if we're not careful, we can create a problem for ourselves. There's just three or four that I want to mention very quickly. One that Don mentioned a few weeks ago, which is so crucial. We can just read the New Testament as if there is nothing in the Old Testament that has any value for us. And we end up ignoring the Old Testament. But if we are to understand Jesus, if we are to understand the New Testament, we do need to know the Old Testament. We do need to have read it. If we solely read the New Testament without any reference to the Old Testament, this is probably the easiest and quickest way to make Jesus in our own image without having the width, the depth, and the wealth of the Old Testament behind it. You know, I've been amazed by online stuff recently about the number of Christian movements that want to go back to the red letters. Have you got one of those those Bibles that Jesus' words are all in red letters? And I'm amazed that Jesus spoke like that, that he had red letters coming out of his mouth. It must have been amazing to watch. You know what I mean? He must have been incredibly clever. But there is a movement that says we need to go back to the red letters of Christ, that we simply need to focus on his words and nothing else. As Don referenced a few weeks ago, a man in the second century, and his name was Marcion, and he, he said that that was what we're supposed to do. And he ended up with a very small pamphlet that was the inspired word of God. Sadly, there are believers across the world today who would have us believe that the Old Testament is not relevant when in fact it really, really is. But you know, we can also fall into the danger of just reading the epistles and the letters of the New Testament and we disconnect them from the story of Jesus and the Gospels. And we end up reading the letters of Paul and James and John time and time again and ignoring the Gospels. We must never take what people said about Jesus and make it more important than what he said about himself. They should never contradict, but our emphasis must forever be balanced. Paul and the apostles are not the founders really of Christianity. Jesus is. So we need to be steeped in what he said about himself, what the gospel writers tell us about himself. 
You know, a third danger is that we can read the four Gospels and try and make them match. We can try and make them work out, forgetting that they tell the same story, the story of Jesus, and they do so in their own way. The Gospels are never meant to match. They will never contradict each other. They are four versions of the same story. And we get that incredible look, that incredible opportunity to look at Jesus through four different eyes, as it were. And and probably, probably the fourth danger that we can come, that I want to make reference to this morning, is that we make the birth and the death and the resurrection of Jesus more important than the middle of his ministry. Friends, this morning, I want us over these next four weeks to realize how crucial the Gospels are to our understanding not only of Jesus, but of how we are to live today. Sometimes we ask for guidance and we ask for directions, and if we knew the Gospels and what Jesus, how he acted and how he reacted, we would have an answer there for them, that Jesus is the good news, that we will see afresh in these four authors that he is the good news, and this word I can never pronounce, Egelion. You see, it is really important to notice how these Gospels are introduced. They are not introduced by saying, these are the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are introduced by saying, these are the Gospels according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And as we study them, as we read them, as we steep ourselves in them, we get their impressions, we get their insight, we get something different from every aspect. And why is this important? Because they all tell the same story and not four different stories. One blogger said this, and I love what he wrote. Now, I know what the problem was when I was younger, and it was not the Gospels, it was me. And today, I turn to them again and again and again with relish. They contain the stuff of life, stories of Jesus, and my life would be a great deal flatter, more monochrome, less deep, less textured, and far less beautiful if it was not for the quartet of voices from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John singing into my very being. So today we're going to look at Matthew. But as we do so, I want to put on this screen, just rotate these four, there's five or six we could have picked. Just rotate these different photographs. And if there's any art lovers here, you'll probably instantly know that they are a series of paintings done by Monet, Monet, the um, 18th and 19th century artist. He was a passionate horticulturist, and he bought a, a, a small farm about 80 kilometers northwest of Paris, and throughout his time there, he painted this bridge at various times of the season and over different years. They are the same picture, but they are different. The bridge is the same, but the bridge is different. The lilies are different, but they are yet the same. And it would be stupid to say, well, let's try and put them all together and try and get one picture because it would distort the the majesty of what Monet was able to paint. And it's exactly the same with the Gospels. We do not try to get one. We do not try to amalgamate them. We do not try to put them together. It would be foolish to do so, and it would undermine the meaning in each and every one of them. As I said, the bridge looks different. The lilies look different, the shades are different, and we are not supposed to make the Gospels all one. So we don't impose Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John on top of each other, and if we do so, we would really distort Jesus. 
One writer said, instead, there is nothing more beautiful than listening to the symphony of four writers. They share a melody, but their words were different. We don't need to force them together, but see them as one. Reading the four gospels means that we see Jesus more clearly and understand him more completely and unmistakably. You know, concern, disquiet rises within me when I read and hear, read articles and read blogs and listen to sermons. And I sometimes think that as evangelicals, we've either become embarrassed by the gospels or we have become too familiar. And I would like to say that it's probably that we've become too familiar. And it does concern me that sometimes we, we have the centrality of the gospels. And I know the Bible is important from the beginning to end, but sometimes there's a, there's a tiredness that goes around emphasizing the Gospels. And this morning I want us for these four weeks to put the Gospels front and center because they tell us so much about Jesus. But it tells us what is truth and where is truth and where is hope and where is life. And Matthew 16, in this passage, there is this fundamental question or in fact two questions that are so important. First of all, he says to the disciples, who do people say that I am? And then he goes on to the question, who do you say that I am? Two crucial questions. And the important thing that we've got to see here to begin with is that Jesus is talking to his disciples in Caesarea Philippi. When it says here in Matthew 16, and they just happen to be in Caesarea Philippi, nothing happens just like that in the word of God. And if we don't grasp something of the background of why this is important here in Caesarea Philippi, we will lose something of the context. You see, Caesarea Philippi is in north, north Israel, it's in northern Galilee, and it is the center of that time of idol worship. It is debauched, it is evil, it is the center of the area, center of idolatry in that area. It is strange, of weird, and not so wonderful of ideas. It is full of idols, it is full of idolatrous religious practices that makes this an incredibly busy place and a fascinating place and a perverted place. It was the, the home of the god, the Greek god Pan. We all will be familiar with the phrase Pan Pipes. And you know, I just make reference to this because when I went on uh, the Google to do a search simply to find something that was okay to represent Pan, the pictures that I was shown, the images that I was shown were so, so debauched. And the pictures that came up, they were absolutely horrendous, that they were so vulgar that I could not even justify putting them up on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night at church. They were that bad. But I say all that because that gives us an insight into what was going on in that area at this time. And Pan was the god of goats, and his, and his pipe music would entice the goats to dance and make their fertility assured. And he was also um, associated with sex and lust and bestiality. It was the original sin city. It was so bad that rabbis in the first century, when Jesus was alive, banned good Jews from going to that city. It was so debauched. They were banned from going there. However, we read that Jesus and his disciples are there. Now that's fascinating, that's an incredible study 
an investigation in and of itself. What on earth was he doing there? Well, there's more to the story of Caesarea Philippi. Alongside the Caesarea Philippi was the home to an incredible geographical uh, foundation. It was the home to a very, very deep ravine, the huge underwater gorge through which all the waters and the melted snow waters from the Golan Heights would flow down and they would flow through this gorge and this, this set of caves and this most incredible noise was made. So as a result, this ravine was intriguing, it was fascinating, it was unique and one of a kind. Firstly, because of the waters, secondly, because of the noise, and thirdly, because of the geographical phenomena. And all this happened in Caesarea Philippi. You see, but there was more. We're going to put two pictures up. That is what it was like in the time of Christ. They had the gorge. This was Caesarea Philippi. They had a gorge, and all that was built into the rock in the time of Christ and before that was what it would have been like in Caesarea Philippi in first century. The next slide will show what it's like today. A lot of it has disappeared or has imploded because in the 19th century, there was an earthquake that shattered all the underground connections and everything. But if we go back, that is what it was like in the time of Christ. But it gets more intriguing, again, for the context of this, because the local people of Caesarea Philippi and that area throughout the times of Christ, those, that gorge, I, I should say, the gorge was known by the, lake, by the locals as the gates of hell. That's what they called them, the gates of Haiti. That was their vernacular for what they called it. If you do a Google search, not now, but when you go home, you do a Google search and you go gates of Hades, Caesarea Philippi, it will take you straight to them. People believed that there in Caesarea Philippi was the very gateway to hell itself. It was in this context a place of religious plurality, of demonic worship, coupled with this incredible geographical formation that brought fear to people. And it is into the heart of this territory. This is into this area where good Jews were not allowed. Into this area of incredible debauched living that Jesus goes with his disciples. He asks them the question, who do you say that I am? And Peter replies, you are the Christ. And he says, on that declaration, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Matthew is all about telling us who Jesus is. And in this incredible, it's, not Im- it's imagery for us, but the reality of there, Jesus takes his disciples, takes his followers, as it were, into the heart of a geographical hell and says, you know, there's a fight on for the lives of men and women, and Satan, you're going to lose. This profound way to let the world know, both seen and unseen, both the heavenlies and under the heavens, that the battle for lives of you and I was going to be fought, and Satan's time was being declared as over. Matthew gives us an incredible insight into what Jesus wants to do. So he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And we all know the replies. He says, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah. And then he says, who do you say that I am? Friends, 
the most important question that any of us will ever be asked is, who do we say that Jesus is? And I believe that it's a question he asks us on a fairly ongoing basis. And Peter replies with these incredible words, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the son of the living God. And of course we know that he says, I will then build my church. I just, for me, the scene, I can't imagine what the scene was like where local tradition believed the gates of hell existed. Right there by them, Jesus says, the gates of hell will not prevail. And so he talks about the power of his church. He talks about the centrality of his church and what it will be built on, and that is the right confession of Christ. The church will always be built on the right of acknowledgement of who Jesus is and not whom we want it or what we want it to look like. He is the master of his church. He is the Lord of his church, and he will always build it his way. You know, this is why we are looking at the four Gospels, because we need to understand who Jesus is. We need to know how he thinks. We need to know whom he claims to be, and we need to know ultimately how this affects and change our lives. We need to take a historical narrative and make it a living reality today. However much we would rush to, de- to deny that we've all probably created Jesus a little bit in our own image, we need to see what the Bible says. I love the, the words of Karl Barth when he's talking about God and man. He says, one cannot speak of God simply by speaking of man in a loud voice. Jesus is not just a good man, and we know it. God, Jesus is not someone who is different, and we know it. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and as we will see th- before we wrap up in a few man- moments, that this puts certain demands on our lives and how we live our lives. There are many ways that we could quickly approach this today. I simply want to highlight some aspects that I would encourage you and that I hope you'd be encouraged to go away and study about from this morning. So I want to approach Matthew's gospel from the way that I believe that he approaches it. And if you read Matthew's gospel, it is full of names. He talks about the many, many different names of Christ, names that we call him and names that he calls himself. And you know, some researchers tell us that a child's name or a person's name can be linked to their future success. The choosing of names and the giving of names is so incredibly important as if Matthew latches onto this and and brings this out. One sociologist says, the sense of personal identity and uniqueness that a name gives us is at the heart of why names interest us and why they are important to us as individuals and society. And and Matthew is gonna pick up on this theme and give us a lesson into the names used by the King of Kings. And the first name that I want us to see is very simply that of Jesus. He says he is Jesus is the one who was born in Bethlehem, Jesus raised in Nazareth, Jesus the son of a carpenter, Jesus the man with brothers and sisters. It is Jesus who moves into his own town. It is Jesus who is the full revelation of God as seen in chapter 11 and much, much more. But let's not forget that we know and we already have heard that Jesus and what he did and how he lived and acted was the exact representation of who God was and when he walked on earth, but he is still the same representation of Jesus today. So therefore, if we want to know the things that Jesus is interested in today, 
we need to read the Gospels. It was not just a statement of truth for when he walked on earth that he was the same representation. He still is the same representation today. And sometimes we ask, what, is, what would Jesus say? Well, what do the Gospels say that he is, he, is, he is doing? So today, I believe it is fair and accurate to say that Jesus is involved in the same things through the power of the Holy Spirit that he was involved in when he walked on earth. That this is not, as I said, just some history le- lesson. He gave us an insight into those things that he is involved in today. He is caring for people. He is loving people. He is saving people. He is setting people free. He is challenging people. He is still doing the same things. And if we want to ask that question, which is well-worn, what would Jesus do? Read the Gospels. When the writer to the Hebrews says that Jesus is the exact representation, he is talking about his words, his thoughts, his behavior, the way he treated people, and his moral choices. Jesus is exactly what God is like then and he is now. That is why it is important to understand, to grab the insights from the gospel that Jesus is shown to us. Another name that Matthew likes to use is Lord, coming down from the word, Hebrew word Adon or Adonai. Sometimes this word can simply mean sir, but on other occasions it can mean much, much more than that, and it means Lord and Lord of all, and that's what it means here. His disciples use it in the context that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is Lord over all. His followers use it in the context that he is Lord over all. You know, when Paul says in Philippians that if you believe on Jesus Christ who is Lord, you will be saved, that is the same context of the word. And you know, this is not meant to provoke, but it is meant to challenge. It is impossible for us as Christians to say that we are Christians and not have Jesus as Lord of our lives. The Gospel of Matthew has an incredible message for us today. That Jesus is first of all still doing the same stuff as he did then, and that also he is still Lord, and the relevance for us is that he is meant to be our Lord. And then we have another title, is called the Son of Man. It is also a phrase that Matthew uses time and time, but he lifts it straight out of the book of Daniel, and he says these words, I saw in the night visions, and beheld with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall never pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Repeatedly, this is important that we get this, repeatedly, Jesus is described as the son of man, but the important fact is, it's what he calls himself. It's the title that Jesus calls himself. In Matthew, nobody else does it. Jesus uses it as his preferred title. You know, some of us have nicknames and we sometimes we call you by your first name. No, no, I'm, I'm called something else. Or, you know, I have a friend who is, his name, oh, he comes to speak to us and his name is Daniel Brown. And after the author, Dan Brown, everybody calls him Dan. But he says, my mother called me Daniel and that's my preferred name. And I just call him Dan to annoy him. But, um, but this is Jesus' preferred name. This is what he calls himself. He says, I am the son of man. He talks about it three times in regards to the cross and he talks it about it twice in future vindication. 
You see, the Son of Man who has all power and all glory and all dominion, and this is what Jesus realizes. This is the name that he chooses for himself, not in an arrogant or boorish way, but because it's true. That's how Jesus sees himself. And I love knowing what Jesus thinks about himself, that he's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-conquering and everything. This is how Matthew wants us, his readers, to understand who Jesus is, that he is powerful, that he is over all, he is in control, and he is able to do what he has said from the beginning of time until the end of time, which will never happen. Friends, today, the, the Jesus of the gospel tells us of a God through Jesus Christ that is so, so powerful it would blow us away. So with the day in mind, when Matthew sat down and wrote his gospel according to the way he saw it and understood Jesus, Matthew would want each and every one of us to be reminded that if Jesus has promised us something, that if he has said that he will do something in our lives, then he is good for that. That he is able to fulfill whatever promise he has made to each and every one of us. Why? Because he is the Son of Man and therefore has all the power and all the glory and all the dominion. And he can work things through for good for us. A couple more titles really quickly and then we'll wrap. Son of God. Matthew sees him as a special anointed one picking up from the Son of God as talked about with David in the Old Testament. It's it's a phrase that springs out of David's messianic promises in the Old Testament, that he is, Jesus is the son of man, that he is not just Joseph's son, he is the son of man. All through his gospel, Matthew tells us of a Jesus who is both son of God and son of man and king. And how does that impact us? Well, it begs the question, is Jesus king? Is he ruler of all that we do individually and corporately? Is he center to my life? Is he the reigning king? Is he the the son of God? Is he both center to my words, to my compassion? Is he central to my generosity? Is he central to my work ethic? Is he central to how I treat my wife, my children, my partner, my parents, my workmates, my friends, my everything? Is he central to my business? Is he central to my every work ethic. Matthew wants us to know the names of Jesus because when we see this, everything else flows into place. If we neglect the the Gospels, we become on an uncertain foundation. And finally, probably the most wonderful, if I can say it, is that he gives him the title Messiah. Matthew attributes to Jesus the most poignant of all when he calls him the anointed one. And that's what it means. And you see, to understand, for us it's easy because we can know what happened, we can read back 2,000 years what happened. But for the people who were reading this in the first century Palestine, this was the most incredible, incredible declaration that he was the Messiah, he was the promised one, he was the anointed one, he was the one that they had longed for, the one that they had hoped for. And when they were called Christians in Antioch in Acts, that literally means the little anointed ones. That was a derisory term, but that's the title that we carry today. You know, to be a Christian of any ethnicity, of any language, of any social standing, of any income bracket, is to say that Jesus is my king. 
He owns me. I am his subject. I am a citizen of his kingdom. I have no rights of my own, and I am now a servant of this incredible manifestation of God. It is not simply I prayed a prayer, therefore I am in. It is I have surrendered my whole life to him so that he can do whatever he wants with me. He can set my life on whatever course. He can send me wherever he wants, whatever he chooses, because I belong to him. Easy Christianity says pray a prayer, and when you, when you do, you will go to heaven. If you have prayed a prayer in your life in a genuine way, then your life will change. Our lives will be different. They will never be the same. Our ethics and our behavior will change. People will see Jesus in us. And the challenge for us is to live the way of our lives in the light of what Matthew says about Jesus. The downfall of doing what we're going to do in this short series is that there is so much more one could say, but time does not permit. But what we, I hope, is that we will glimpse something in Matthew that Jesus, above everybody else, is grounded in God's purposes, Son of God, Son of Man, Messiah, the Anointed One, etc. That Jesus knows that there is a big story from the beginning of time until he comes again. He knows that the New Testament is nothing without the Old Testament, that there is a story, that there is a big picture that we've heard much of in these last 12 months. And the challenge that you and I face, the challenge that I face today is, do I see myself as part of a big story and grounded in his purpose, or is it me in my little corner and you in yours? And we come together on a Sunday. But are we part of this big, big picture that God is doing through his people, through his church, here in Hamilton, the Waikato, and in New Zealand? Do we see the gospel? And we say yes, of course we do, not as something that is preached on church, but what we do with our money, how we live and treat our neighbors, etc. But also how we see people, how we talk about them. What is God like in Matthew? Well, it is one that says Jesus is king, and everything else flows from him. A kingdom that he has established, a kingdom he will complete, a kingdom that he will establish forever, and one that he invites you and I to be part of with a lifestyle that is radically different. It is incredibly difficult for a world to be drawn to a gospel where the lifestyle and morals of the church are no different to the world. Matthew, having laid out the majesty, supremacy, and awesomeness of Jesus, who is the king of the kingdom, calls us to live for the kingdom. He calls us to live as citizens of that kingdom. You know, we live in a culture, we live in a society that tells us time and time again that life is all about me, that life is all about us, because I am really, really important, and I am the center of the universe, which we would all agree, wouldn't we? I am the center of the universe. But in fact, the center of this whole universe is a man called Jesus who was both yet man and God. And he is the center of the universe and our lives are called to revolve around him and not vice versa. And this is one of the main themes of Matthew's gospel that we have been saved and we have been called to follow he who is Jesus, who is Lord, who is the Son of Man, who is the Son of God, who is the Messiah, and so much more, so that all that we should be able to do is fall down and worship him. Musicians, please come and join me. Matthew teaches us to live 
with Jesus at the center of our lives. He tells us that he is the anointed one, the fulfillment of God's purposes and plans, the king of the kingdom to which we belong. You know, so what does that mean for us? It's great to hear titles, great to hear different things, but what does that mean for each and every one of us? What does it mean for the Gospels to shape our understanding of Jesus and then shape our lives? What does it really mean to have Christ at the center of our lives? And you know, it will look different for each and every one of us. But I believe that at its very basic, at its very least, it means that we say yes to Jesus. That whatever the question, we say yes. That whatever he asks of us, we say yes. It's whatever he requires of us, we say yes, that we trust him. And your situation is different to the person sitting next to you, in front of you, or behind you, and different to mine. And it's not a list of rules of do's and don'ts and that. It's just simply being a people who say, he is the king, and I will say yes to him. That we make him the center of our universes. That Matthew goes to so much work to tell us who he is through the use of his names that when we say yes to him, that we will ensure that the kingdom of God will burst into us and through us and out to touch a watching world because we have simply said yes to him. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.